Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in June 2022. Today's episode is all about the ethics surrounding animals and specifically eating animals. So we'll be thinking about the morality of humans' treatment of animals, meat-eating, vegetarianism and veganism, and how philosophical theories apply to these issues. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Fiona Woolard, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Southampton. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Simon. Uh, Dan McKee, teacher at King Edward's Aston and writer at Philosophy Unleashed. Hi, Dan. Hi, Simon, and everyone else. <laughs> and Lauren Tracekowski, who is Senior Lecturer at Business School at Aston University. Hi, Lauren. Hello, how are you? Uh, good, thank you. Uh, great to have all three of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about animals today. For any A-level students listening in, this topic appears on the AQA philosophy curriculum as part of a set of applied ethics topics. Uh, all being well, we'll be covering stealing, lying and simulated killing in other episodes, which are also in the AQA syllabus. The morality of animals isn't in either of the, uh, the two other eight main A-level curricula, um, but I hope this episode will be useful in illustrating philosophical ideas and interesting all the same, no matter what you're studying or who's listening. Perhaps you're interested in this and, and thinking about it at GCSE level or wanting to write an IB extended essay on it. Or perhaps you're not in the UK and just interested in the morality around eating animals. We're going to split this uh, episode into three main segments. We're actually going to talk about eating animals in our second segment. And in the third segment, we're going to think about big philosophical normative ethical theories, utilitarianism, deontology and the like. But in this first segment, we thought we'd just put a few general issues on the table, thinking about generally how humans might interact with animals and how we might treat them or mistreat them, and also aspects of animals' lives, if I can put it like that, that we need to be bearing in mind as we're thinking about all of these different ways in which humans interact with animals. So, uh, Fiona, do you want to get us started on those topics then and get our minds buzzing with everything that's going on? Yes, thank you. So. I wanted to, to start by thinking about some of the work in animal ethics that I found, I would say, a bit surprising. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have the obvious question, can we eat animals? But I think there's really interesting work being done at the moment, which looks at maybe more counterintuitive questions. So uh -huh. when it comes to you know, pets or animal keeping animals in, in captivity, that leads us to question, you know, what are the morally relevant features when it comes to animals? So do animals have a dignity mm. which could be undermined or, or disrespected, even if you are ensuring that they have their their well-being is mm -hmm. is uh, seem to be happy, but could there also be something wrong with how you're treating an animal, even when it seems as if it's feeling it's not feeling any pain. It generally seems to be content. So I think that that raises lots of interesting issues. When it comes to pets, I've seen lots of interesting work recently. So, I mean, obviously, one thing, one issue is should we keep pets at all? Mm -hmm. But if we do keep pets, how should we keep them? So one issue is when it comes to, for example, cats. Should cats be kept inside? Many people find that quite counterintuitive the idea that you might be morally required to keep your cat inside because this seems in some way disrespectful to the cat it seems to be mm -hmm. limiting its natural life but there are arguments that both for the cat's sake and for the sake of 
the local wildlife, there may actually be a moral obligation only to keep your pets inside. So I'm quite interested in some of these sort of surprising, or I think of as surprising issues. Yeah, thinking about the mice and shrews local to our house, I'm sure they'd agree that we should keep our cat inside, but but we don't at the moment. Uh, great starter, thanks, uh, Fiona. Dan, Lauren, anything you want to uh, respond to that or kind of add into the mix and we can try and make sense of it all? I'd say Fiona's words really resonate with me because I do have a cat that I do keep inside and um, we had to keep our cat inside. I've had two cats uh, in my adult life, both of which have been cats that had to be kept indoors the first one was we we only wanted a cat that kept indoors because we lived in a upstairs flat in a building in car you know it couldn't get upstairs it, it couldn't ring the buzzer to get in and things like that and we got a cat that had been like traumatized by things and couldn't go outside and had a sort of psychological fear of going outside so that was perfect for mm-hmm. us um, and it was a happy cat lived a long life and our, our current cat had a similar thing where it um Something bad had happened when it had been outside. It had been attacked by either animals or people, no one knows. But when we rescued it, we were just told, you know, it should stay in. And we've always felt bad because our garden seems to be the meeting ground for all the neighbourhood cats. So there's constantly these cats locally that come in and out of our garden. And our cat would sort of sit in the window and look at them. But to be fair, the cat never wanted to go outside. Like when you open up the door or something... And it had a it had an illness that actually ended up having to have its eyes um, removed, its eyeballs removed. And it weirdly, again, this is animals and humans and the difference. It's a lot happier since it had its eyeballs <laughs> removed a few years ago. Far more active than it used to be because it's not in pain anymore. But again, without sight, the idea of it being outside, we're very glad it wasn't used to being outside because it, that was never a problem. It just can still walk around our house and do everything it used to do very safely. But if if it had been used to be going outside, I think once you took its sight away, it would have you would have felt there was something wrong with we you know we live on a busy road and things like that. So it's something we've had to wrestle with quite a lot of like, are we being cruel? Because you could tell a story of we have a cat, we we kidnapped it, we kept it in a house, we took out its eyes. Um, that's a horrifying story, but we see it as there was this traumatized cat that we care for and we gave it a safe place and we gave it medical care that it needed and it you know still got a very happy life and is currently locked outside this room right now wanting to come in but i've got rid of it so that we can do a podcast about it meowing in the background <laughs> so like the cat seems to, to love us despite the, the the potential you know capture and mistreatment it's actually good treatment and uh, giving it a home but i do wonder every day you know is it right do i have a right to, to have this cat and back to dignity should it be allowed to just go outside and die naturally from fending for itself in the wild without any sight and with no not ever being used to being outside the first time it was rescued was that immoral should we the, the RSPCA have left it to to die because that's what naturally should have happened without human intervention so it's a it's a strange thing and it, yeah I think about it a lot uh, thanks thanks Dan uh, Laura I'm allergic to cats so I'm glad you guys can have a conversation about pets I'm, I'm not going to have that conversation about pets um, but instead how about distant animals what about wildlife conservation um, are conservation efforts morally required because we're the reason that certain uh, groups of animals have gone extinct or should we allow things to happen because we allow things to happen to humans? So should we allow them to happen to non-humans as well? Um, so conservation is, is an interesting one. I think there are a lot of ethical issues and um, what is it? The the triggering of an event and you're morally blameworthy if you set and set 
in uh, into action the the trigger uh, of those events and so maybe we're morally morally required to act but then just general wildlife as well you know should we should we allow them to roam free should we not you know put up fences around our house are we instead of limiting them within a house and not in the back garden are we actually limiting their freedom of movement do they have a right to freedom of movement? You know, why would why am I even arguing that they might have a freedom of movement? Do they have the interests? Do they have rights? Where 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 are all of our lines on wildlife? And do you you both talked about you know pets and 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 more home based animals? But do those same uh, interests or rights or whatever we decide or whatever we discuss do those extend to wildlife? How, how do we how do we pair those up? And and if they do apply, well, then all the animals should have the same access to justice. And if they don't apply, then on what grounds are we justifying? Going back to what Fiona was saying, like, on what grounds are we justifying uh, how we understand these animals? So yeah, that's one of those that I'm interested in. I'm also interested in how we respond in the aftermath of a natural hazard to wildlife, because we don't always save humans. So should we even be thinking about saving non-humans? Uh, there's that that kind of line for me as well. So less to talk about with animals. Good. So in fact, just just to follow up on the conservation issue, Lauren, just just to extend it. So I've got a friend at uh, the University of Kent who's an academic. They're in anthropology and conservation, and they're currently. I mean, they're, they're not a philosopher, but I've talked with him a lot because he's interested in the ethics of conservation, where he's done quite a lot of work on conservation itself, and then the trade in in animals. Mm, yep. And we've reached a point, now arguably we shouldn't have reached the point, but we've reached a point where in certain, um, particularly African countries where he works a lot, they're having to set up conservation areas and that work, that vital work is funded and the only way to fund it really is to allow rich Westerners to go and and shoot animals. Now that's a terrible state of affairs, but what do you do, right, in the short term? Uh, so, I mean, of course, you know, we, we've probably all seen it. And I'm sure some of the students and teachers listening to this have seen all sorts of, well, I hope they haven't seen the graphic pictures, but they've seen pictures. They've, they will have seen reports about this sort of trade. But that sort of tourism funds a lot of the conservation. And so there's interesting questions there about whether it's right to do that and whether there's just a pragmatic reason right now to carry on funding that, because otherwise some of these animals will, will die out but in a different way, but at least the species is carrying on. So there's a very interesting, delicate issue there, thinking about conservation. It's the same with zoos, isn't it? Zoos, obviously, the funding for a zoo comes from people going to the zoo as a visitor, and they tend to trade on the idea that this is a conservation project. But that can be quite problematic because not all zoos necessarily are conservation projects. Sometimes you have just private zoos and you know people have got some animals and they want to make a profit. And the narrative in our head that, funding zoos funds conservation sort of gives us an ethical pass to go and watch animals that have have been made captive and sometimes it's great and important work but sometimes it's not and you could even say if it if it's the way that they fund it through the zoo model does that then actually um override some of the other moral concerns for the animals so should they be kept in this kind of captivity where an audience can come and look at them. And certainly there's things like distinctions between conservation projects and things like, you know, places where like SeaWorld, where animals do tricks for for people and get arguably, allegedly mistreated, uh, just to not get the podcast in any trouble. But you know what I mean? You've got that, you've got that thing of, do we think it's okay to pay to see some animals because we think that we're funding conservation? In some cases we are, but by that model, we might be actually funding a bad model of conservation, one that maybe mistreats animals for some greater good that maybe there's better ways of doing it with different funding models. 
and then other, otherwise we are allowing people to profit off the idea that we're doing something ethical by going to their zoos that aren't conservation uh, and it's it's a tricky one just thinking again about taking animals from their natural habitat and putting them somewhere again just like with our cats for their own good you know who are we to say what is for their own good and again you could argue should we leave them to extinct themselves if we're not responsible but as lauren says we might be the ones responsible therefore we might have an obligation to do something about it but i just add to that even if we're not responsible might we still have an obligation in the same way that if there was a human who was in trouble through nothing i've done charities would tell me i have an obligation to try and help save a life there or protect someone from suffering there so it feels like even without responsibility should we be doing something about the animals we clearly know are in trouble and, and in danger i think one thing that that this brings up for me is interesting differences between the way we think about humans and the way that we think about animals because it seems as if for animals we are far more prepared to think of the species as the kind of key unit of concern and you know to think it's it's okay to have uh, one animal get shot because this will help the species to to survive whereas uh, you can't you ha- you'd have to be quite a rabid consequentialist to be uh, you know happy with that when it comes to humans absolutely you know? yeah, all yeah. right fiona's going to get shot you know but uh, that's it's okay. going to be better for the species yeah, better yeah. species yeah yeah we so sort of had those conversations with covid day didn't we of of, uh-huh. of how many people are we willing to put at risk and potentially die so the rest of us could go back to some semblance of normal and that that was i think what caused such sort of debate and and rancor around those issues is it was sort of treating humans like a numerical system of greater goods and things and we felt you can't talk about us as the human species so to say you know society's back to normal everything's great and we just had to like lose a bunch of people of, of this age or this vulnerability was something we weren't willing to accept for humans or some people were willing to accept. And there was all this dispute about it. Whereas, yeah, we say with animals quite frequently, well, we have to kill this many so that they don't overpopulate and the species gets to survive. And yeah, it, there definitely seems a difference in the way we talk about it. But I think there's still, a, um, I like the comparison with COVID and I think it's a really, really important one, but I think then we get into um, a whole killing versus letting die. And I think so many people saw putting certain people at risk as killing as opposed to letting die. And what we were, what Fiona, you were saying was actually like killing an animal. And I think that that distinction is so important because no one was recommending that we kill another human. And I think that if we, if we started talking about animals in this or humans in the same way that we would talk about animals for conservation purposes or whatever, I think that's when we have a horrible situation on our hands. But why do I don't know why I think that? And, you know, all the reading and all the prep for this, I don't know why I think that there's a distinction that we shouldn't allow humans to be killed, but it's okay to allow animals to be killed. And, you know, I've, I've in preparing for this, I'm questioning every reason that I am a vegetarian, you know, so, so it's, um, I think that killing versus letting die. And I wish that we could actually explain to people in society that no, we are not killing anyone. There is something morally like reprehensible about that, but letting die is like a lesser harm, not saying it's not bad, but it is a lesser harm. And so we're still treating people better than we would ever treat non-human people. I mean, this is not on the topic of the podcast, but how the killing, letting die distinction applies to COVID is extremely interesting. And um, uh, so Helen Froh wrote uh, 
some stuff arguing it's it we were actually talking about risking doing harm to people and uh, I wrote a response to that saying actually it's a kind of complicated sort of doing harm where the alternative is also saving <laughs> but uh, it's it's very it's very interesting and complicated but it's it's obviously different from yes we're gonna let people hunt you in order to, yeah. to that's to, right some 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 of the hunger games kind of um yeah scenario actually the one thing we will we will get back to animals in a moment the one thing that was coming to my i knew when you mentioned killing and letting die fiona would just be all over, all over that. <laughs> so one thing although this does relate to animals um don't don't worry students we are still talking about animals is is traffic that was the thing that was going through my head so so dan leapt in with covid good example actually was traffic because we're prepared to put up with a certain amount of traffic and speeding cars right and we put all sorts of safety measures in place for humans but you know i go to work you know many days i'm driving in driving the kids in i see all sorts of roadkill all the time from the from all not the to field. mention all the flies on your windshield all the flies as well yeah but loads of foxes and badgers and when the kids were young they're saying oh no what was that and i said oh don't worry it was a carry a bag or something (laughs) but whether it's killing less night who knows but we've certainly got a different attitude towards animals and humans when it comes to traffic i think well even i think if you run over a pigeon or something you wouldn't necessarily even stop the car depending on the size of the animal you might but some people might go oh dear that pigeon went under my wheels and i carried on whereas you wouldn't with a human no matter how small they were it'd be well you might but that would be a criminal offense important that's right after me for for running over that pigeon and, and that's can i tell you a story about when i was learning to drive <laughs> go on Fiona. i was one color to the, to the podcast i'm sure my dad was teaching me to drive or practicing actually because and we're driving along and we see a, there's a dog that's off a leash off its leash and running about where it's not supposed to be while i'm driving and my dad says if that runs out in front of you don't swerve you must not swerve. You must hit that dog, because otherwise you will kill. <laughs> you will risk a uh, risk human life, and you must never do that. But I'm like, okay, okay, uh, I'll maybe just pull over and stop the car. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend who did hit, crash their car because they swerved for a rabbit, and their parents told them off in the exact same way. They just passed their test, mm-hmm. and they were they said you should never swerve for an animal, and like you know they had written off the car. And they were okay, but could have died. Big lesson everyone was saying is how stupid of you to have put yourself in danger for that rabbit. But yeah, we do. Well, AI and driverless cars are actually are actually deciding. You know, Moral Machine at MIT students, if you get a chance, MoralMachine.mit.edu, and it's all these like little just thought. Um, what are they called? Um, Thought experiments. Thank you. There's the word. Thought experiments on do you swerve if there's a grandmother and a grandchild? Do you swerve if there's a dog and a grandparent? Do you swerve if there's two adults? What about who's in your car? And I think that how we play those games are actually changing into how we program our driverless cars. And so I think traffic is a really good example of how we understand animal life and animal rights and animal interests. And and we actually need to think about it very, very seriously as we start programming AI, because the future of society is dependent on the decisions, the ethical decisions that we make now. And it's going to be very, very hard to untrain 
Think about how difficult it is to untrain your grandparents. It's going to be even more difficult to untrain AI once they start learning. So we really have to make good decisions about what ethical choices they will make and as it pertains to animals. Great. So just to, just to pause there, and in fact, just one advert. So students, if anyone tells you, don't study philosophy, you won't make money, believe you me, if you do a philosophy degree, or particularly if you do philosophy and computing, and then you go into AI you, you will be very much in demand. Everyone's nodding their heads about that. So look, we listen, here, here's some topics we've, we've covered already. We've thought about pets. I suppose the big question there, which was kind of bubbling around the surface, is not, not just how do we treat pets, but should we have pets in the first place? Should we have domesticated animals? We've been then thinking about zoos and conservation. And there's this, all the way through, there's this entanglement between human relationships and animal relationships. So there's pets, which are kind of easy to domesticate. We wanted, you know, I'm happy to, have domesticated cats i wouldn't want to have a lion or a tiger in my house but there might still be obligations or obligations of stewardship towards these these creatures and how do we those we actually got onto a bit of entertainment thinking about zoos but of course you could just think about animals on tv or circuses or anything like that when we're using animals just for pure entertainment is that at all ethical is that all at all defensible the one we haven't thought about so i'm just going to then go back to the guests and then we'll go on to something else is experimentation. Anyone got any thoughts about animal experimentation? My, my first thought is how selfish are we? And I think my, my thought through uh, all of this on animals is, yeah, but a lot of this is just our selfishness and our laziness. So I think with experimentation, it's quite interesting because in order to, for makeup, look pretty, you know, we're willing to put animals at risk. But then you get into experimentation, medical experimentation. And I mean, before I came on this podcast, I just went and got three vaccines. So is it okay if they're tested on non-humans first to make sure that they're going to work on me? I don't know. Um, I don't I don't think so. I'm not very happy with it. But I think then it's what are we willing to do to an animal that we're not willing to do to ourselves? And why is it that we're willing to do it to the animal and not to ourselves? How do we see the animal is in some way lesser or is less worthy of, as, as we were saying before, dignity? And I think experimentation is the one that is the most undignified of all of them, even beyond entertainment. Yeah, there's an assumption. I said there's an assumption in experimentation always that we need someone to volunteer for this thing that might be too risky for a human. And that assumption there, so you say too risky for these people, but we can cope with these people having the bad benefits of it or the, or the disbenefits of the experiment. You have made this distinction where you said these things are expendable in a way that these things aren't. And that's, I think, the problem with, with animal experimentation, even if it's a worthy cause, like you say, maybe a vaccine compared to, you know, they do like flavors of crisps get tested on animals as well as makeup and you know, all kinds of cosmetics. But we might say, well, we shouldn't do that, but we, we must have medical experimentation. Yeah. But even then, if you say, but we can only test that on animals, we can't test that on humans, or we need to test it on animals first before we test it on humans, there is a massive statement there that is saying because their lives are worth less than, than ours. Now, that might be true, um, but it might not be. And I think it needs far more justification than just well because they're animals which seems to be the implied thing with animal experimentation and certainly talking to students that's often um, the younger they are 
um, when you sort of say, is this okay? Well, yeah, it is because, you know, we, we need the vaccines. They might think the cosmetics are problematic, but we need the vaccines and it's too risky for, for humans. We wouldn't want people to get hurt. That's the whole point of why we want a vaccine in the first place. We want to stop the suffering of humans. So we wouldn't suffer, cause human suffering to stop the suffering of humans. So we'll put an animal at risk. And that seems to be the sort of inbuilt assumption there, unless you're doing equal experiments with, with humans, at which point, why are you doing them on the animals, unless it's for veterinary medicines and veterinary vaccines? Great. Thank you. So let's just move on then. Fiona mentioned dignity earlier on, and there's obviously some major characteristics or features that people always think about when it comes to animals that might be such as to get us thinking about their moral status. So should we just go through some of the main ones, just to, just to list them and then have a quick chat about them? That'll lead on to the material in the, in the second and third segment. So does anyone want to go through some of the main characteristics? So with the, the sentience, can you feel pain, uh, pain and pleasure? Uh, we'll get into Bentham and, you know, can they suffer? Uh, can you feel pain and pleasure? Then there's uh, consciousness. Can they think? Can a, can, a, can a being think? Uh, the one that I always feel uh, is interesting, and it, it pertains to pets as well, is that um, interrelationship. Is there is there a reason that we give them certain authority or standing because we have these relationships with them? And so it only matters that, that the relationship exists, and that's how we justify our relationships with humanity. And then humanity in general, just humans matter, and that's that's the end of it. I think that was everything. Did you say rationality? I no, remember. I didn't say rationality. Okay. And the other one that I think about is um, autonomy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there we go. Does any any one of those initially stand out to any of you as being more important or more interesting than the others? I think from what, we've, what we're talking about in, in terms of the examples we've been looking at, the suffering one does seem to stand out because we are talking about causing suffering or perceived suffering to animals. So it does seem a, a quite an important thing to, to question whether or not it is suffering. Uh, that we're causing or not so that one definitely seems it's a, you couldn't ignore ignore that bit i don't think if you're talking about our treatment of animals because there seems to be a lot of if there is suffering caused a lot of it happening at, at our hands so it does seem like something we need to think about yeah i guess that's important and that's interesting and those might pull in different uh-huh, directions yeah, absolutely because i mean i think the the sentience is important but for a lot of animals it's not really very interesting because that's just an obvious answer. It's you know it's, it's so clear that a dog can feel pain, a cow can feel pain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are interesting questions about how far down it goes, but I think there are much more interesting. I, I guess I find the other questions more interesting. Like, is there a kind of autonomy that animals can have? Is there a kind of um, a rationality that animals can have. So Shelley Kagan wrote a book not that long ago called uh, Counting Animals, More or Less. And uh, yeah, he argues that um, animals have a kind of autonomy. And I, I really like both the argument and actually the book is just a really nicely, I, th- I think it's quite an accessible book. So um, autonomy and these are, I think these other things are, are interesting because they're less obvious than sentience, which in many cases is obvious, but incredibly important. Okay, great. Yeah, so just to summarise things there. So we've, we've talked about lots of examples, and I listed them earlier on, but we had entertainment and experimentation, zoos, pets. I, I mentioned traffic as well. And we've just gone through a list of various characteristics that people think animals have. 
And, and as Fiona just said, right, so these characteristics can be interesting. I suppose that the key question is which, if any of these characteristics, is important enough to give animals or certain sorts of animals, be it individuals or species, moral status. And then I suppose the really interesting question to watch out for students is, if you think that that's the important characteristic, what does it tell us about the moral status of human beings and different types of human being? But perhaps we'll come back to that in the third segment. Um, Let's end things there. And then in the second segment, we're going to think specifically about eating animals. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, just to remind you to check out our website. So just search for my name, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N. You'll find my personal website, all being well. And at the top, there's some tabs. If you click on the tab that says Pod Schools, I have a list of various topics that I keep up to date uh, every so often anyway. And you'll get a sense of when we're recording topics Uh, If you want to write in with any questions or comments about the topics, please do so. And we'll try to use your questions and comments in an episode. If we've already recorded something that you still want to ask questions or comments about, perhaps you've heard something that Fiona or Dan or Lauren is saying in this episode, then I'm planning on recording some later episodes where we just look at questions and comments from students and teachers. And we can just do a big Q&A roundtable on them all. And I'll fire some questions at people like Dan and Lauren and Fiona without them even knowing what the questions are going to be and see how they respond. So please write in. You can just find my email address as well on that website. Also, something I I always say, if you're struggling for resources and thinking about what to read, then two good resources that I often use in my teaching are the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. You can just search for those to find. And they've got all sorts of entries across all sorts of philosophical topics. Uh, There there are entries on moral status of animals, vegetarianism, uh, on both of those. Okay, so we're back into this second segment. We've talked about animals in general, various other spheres where we interact with them and their characteristics. But now let's get on to the topic that we're, I suppose, here for, really, and that's eating animals. And I suppose often people structure things and think about relation to eating animals and indeed I should say animal products in kind of two ways there's consumption the actual eating of animals and their products but also first of all there's production so should we start with with production then and think through that uh Lauren do you want to kick things off for us Yeah, thanks. So with production, we often think automatically about farms. So we can think about farms for any kind of livestock and and how, how they're going to be raised. If you have a farm that is raising any animal, chickens or cows or I don't know, even goats or something like that, or pigs, obviously, is there something morally acceptable about raising animals for feeding humans? Is there something that, uh, you know, our interests matter above that of non-humans? And so it's okay to to utilize them to, to feed us. Then the argument goes, well, do we really need nutrients from animals in order to survive? Well, maybe not. There are alternatives. So then we have to start thinking, well, then maybe raising animals for through production, you know, is unethical. Well, what about more organic ways of raising livestock and, uh, you know, having chickens and pigs and stuff? Are organic ways 
of raising. It raises the price. So it means actually our interests have to be checked. We have to actually think about if we're going to be eating these these products. But then also it means a better quality of life for these non-humans. And so all of a sudden we're thinking about the interests and maybe the rights. We'll, we'll, we can talk about that. Interests definitely of the animals on the farm. We are still going to kill them in order to eat them, but we're thinking about the interests of those animals and maybe they're, I think it was, I think it's Cora Diamond, I've read a lot this weekend, um, that was saying that if we're thinking about those interests of their short-term life, that, you know, they have, they can feel the pain and pleasure. They know that they, they want to avoid pain, but maybe they don't really have an interest in or an understanding of death. And so as long as we're being ethical to them in those short-term pain instances, then that's okay. The part of production that we don't talk about enough is actually the actual killing. So abattoirs and what that means. And so um, then you have to think about, are we stunning a cow? Have, has that stunning actually been successful or have we actually inflicted more pain? So we're getting into all of those uh, those aspects of moral standing. We're saying, well, is it pain? Is it their interest? Is it that they have an interest in continuing to live? In which case, does that mean that there, there's actually autonomy discussions going on? Do we have a right to inflict pain on someone else if they have an interest in avoiding pain? Uh, so all the production starts raising all of these issues, and we haven't even gotten into consumption. So I don't know if you want me to continue, or, or we can just start there with the production and the various uh, levels of it. Let's stick with production. That, that was great, though. Uh, really good summary. Thanks, Lauren. Dan, Fiona, have you got anything you want to add in? I think that we will get to consumption, but one of the problems with all of those issues you've raised, Lauren, is if the thing we are doing this for is ultimately itself unethical, you've got all these ethical issues, but it really does seem problematic that if the, the goal of all of that is something that we shouldn't be doing at all. You might say there's a great, a good argument that all those things lead to the essential nutrition. But like you said, we, we don't need the nutrition of animals to survive. There's also further harms. I mean, there's a massive environmental impact of, 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 of the animal farming in terms of things like where you deforest places to create grains and crops to feed to animals, not to humans. And instead of sending the, the, the crops that could feed humans, we feed up the animals so that someone can kill them and sell them. And it feels like the system of food production that's at play there is you know, quite inefficient and quite unnecessary for then as well, if at the end of it, the end goal is slaughtering lots of, lots of animals. There's the exploitation involved in, in things like abattoirs as well, because it's grotty work killing, you know, animals, however you're doing it, whether it's painlessly or quickly or painfully, there's, you know, religious killings of things like halal and kosher, which are far more maybe brutal in modern days. They were at the time of scripture, this sort of, you know, the best way of killing them as far as people knew or God was supposed to know, but you know, technology's moved on because those jobs are so sort of miserable we, we we don't want them and people who have them are people who need money and can be exploited and there's massive exploitation in that in that industry so when you see all of the sort of sprawling issues around production you've got to ask that question and what is it we're doing again oh we, we, this is all to, to kill animals so that we can we can feed people their their products and then you say well do people need that is that essential and the answer is well, well no you know, you can be a vegetarian. There are, are people who survive on vegetarian, vegan diets. 
who have survived and never needed it. There's, there's cultures who would have a primarily uh, vegetarian diet for religious or whatever reasons. And you sort of look at that and go, so you don't need it. It causes all these ethical issues in the production stage alone. You know, that is a huge problem before you even question what it is to eat it. It's, it's that question of the, just the morality of should you require meat as part of a diet in the first place, let alone do we actually care about the animals that we're murdering to do it to get to that point it, it's it's such a a mess i think if you look at it as an industry that yeah it, you've got to say it's it's there's a massive argument for why we do it if we do all these things to get there and you know we'll see when we talk about consumption if there is a massive argument but i don't know that there is at the moment it's hard to know how to follow that <laughs> but uh, i was just going to going to go pick up on something that lauren said which i think is very important and, and and interesting and that's the question of how you might consistently care about animal welfare enough to think that it matters how you treat animals and yet be okay with with meat production and i think that that lauren said something really important here which is this question of what kind of interests what kind of rights to animals have and it is potential it's, it's coherent i think to think that they have interests in not feeling pain for example but not an interest in 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 continuing to live and i think that's a really important distinction i personally don't hold that position so i think animals do have an interest in continuing to live but in order to be kind of i think fair to the people to to disagree with me it is important to i think have that in mind that it's a lot easier to show that animals have an interest in avoiding pain than to show that they have an interest in in continuing to live so it's it's not kind of ridiculous to think it matters how we treat animals when we are treating them when we're producing meat. Actually, I have a PhD student who's doing some really interesting work on this at the moment, um, and and uh, what kind of worldview on animals might might enable us to make sense of how farmers might love their animals and and be genuinely said to care for them while bringing rearing them for slaughter. Um, so it's you know there's there's a lot to be said on on this i feel like can i can i hat tip my phd student of course you can of course you can so alex murphy he's my phd student great well i hope he's listening hi alex thanks to all of you so so just then to build on that i suppose two questions i mean for you if you want to to, to go with them but also i think interesting for students and if teachers listening as well for teachers perhaps to, to, to talk through in the classroom I always think that there's two interesting questions here. So just particularly building on um, what Dan was saying and then which, which built on, on Lauren's introduction. So why might it be bad for us to be raising animals for for meat, but it's it's okay for animals to kill other animals? And in particular, I'm thinking, given we were talking about cats a lot at the start, is it okay for me to be feeding George, my cat, meat pouches that's not george going out and killing a bird that's me buying some meat pouches to feed my cat so so what's going on there as well as lions killing antelopes and all that sort of example and the second question that i think is interesting to think about having done lots of reading we, in, in the build-up to all of these podcasts we you know i set everyone some homework so we've all been doing loads of loads of reading i was reading some really interesting examples about plant production so we're talking about i mean uh, lauren introduces as farming really we're talking about factory farming and factory farming on an industrial scale we're talking about millions upon billions of lives here and so similarly, if we switch from, or many of us switch from a meat-based diet to a plant-based diet, 
Then there's industrial plant production. That uses a lot of water. There's a lot of environmental degradation to feed people. And in that situation, what we're doing is very likely killing a lot of moles and voles and small animals. Okay? That's that's just accepted. That's just what happens, right? And so this is not a defense to say uh, meat, meat rearing is fine and meat production is fine. But if you think that factory farming for meat production is bad, what do we think about those poor moles and voles that get you know crushed in their tens and hundreds of thousands when we're making corn? So what's going on there? How are we treating the animals in that situation? So uh, those are two things to think about students. Hey, you could write an EPQ on that. Um, I don't know what, what anyone else thinks about those those two. So I've se- I've seen the second argument quite a, quite a lot, but the thing that uh-huh. puzzles me is this picks up on something that Dan mentioned about mm-hmm. you know your your pyramid of efficiency. So is it really true that more animals get killed more more animals get killed as a side effect, moles and voles and things? Yeah. That, um, that I don't know. Shall I, shall I reframe the question, Fiona? So let's imagine, even in the case of factory farming for meat production, more animals get killed. What's bad there? Is it each and is it is every single death wrong, or is it just the volume of death and the volume of pain? Because clearly, there's going to be a certain volume of pain and animal death when it comes to industrial plant production. So, is it are we just going for just you know lesser volume of harm, or is there something else going on that that tells us that something's wrong when it comes to meat production? I suppose that 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 was the question I was getting at. Sorry to interrupt. Well, yeah, I was just thinking with both of your questions that the real problem I think that we haven't really addressed is the the economics of it. The problem with all of it seems to be the commodification of animals. As you know, if you if you make the equivalence to to humans, you can say all kinds of things about certain lives being more valuable than others and having different levels of moral standing and all kinds of stuff that might have parallels of animals. But you know, the whole issue of slavery has seen that we have drawn the line over owning another human being and and buying and selling as a commodity or using them as a means to profit from in this particular way with their life obviously we profit from people all the time by employing them and, and 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 letting them work for us but there's like their life in some way should have dignity and it shouldn't be that we're killing them for our profits that that tends to to shut your business down if you're killing people for your profit so when we when we're looking at the sort of industrial level of farming and and, and these issues it could be that that's part of what the the offense is that we are treating these animals, yes, with lots of respect and giving them, you know, if we give them a lovely free range idea or, or organic farms or whatever it is, but you're still looking at them as a property that your end goal is to chop up and sell, make get as much money from so that you can probably buy more cattle to do the same with and keep the business going so you can pay a mortgage or, you know, get your children into to university or something. And it's, it's using them as that sort of means to an end as a commodity rather than giving them any kind of dignity. So it's almost like that undermines any dignity you give them in the process of we are going to kill you at the end because you are my property and I have just got you so that I can profit from you. But we're going to make the prison nice. We're going to make the slaughterhouse quick. All of that stuff is going to be done for you, but it's not for them. It's it's ultimately for you, so your business can run and you can profit off it. And then that brings in the problem of the scale of sort of you know this this industrial scale of, of large scale farming. You're doing all these things that aren't about the best for the animal. They're not about anything really. Even if that's part of your business model is to make sure animals have a good time. It's make sure animals have as good a life as possible 
and we can make a profit still. So they're still going to scale things or even limit things if it's massive factory farming to say, for the, for the most amount of profit we can get from these stock, as we call them, they might be live stock, but that word stock is still in there. You know, they are commodities for us to, to take their life and sell. And all of that massive scale, if it's plants or if it's animals, maybe the problem is commodifying nature in general, whether it's a, a living animal or a plant. And there are arguments, you know, in environmental ethics about the value and, and moral standing of, of plants and things uh, like that as well. And I think it was, um, Robin Atfield or, or Richard Silvan, I can't remember which one, but they did something about, you know, if, if you're the last survivor in a nuclear holocaust, is it wrong to chop down the last tree? Because, you, you know, the tree, does the tree have any kind of rights in itself? And you can ask questions about that. But for me, it's the commodification of anything. All the arguments around looking after them and making it nice kind of get corrupted by the fact that's not our real motive here. Our real motive is, can I earn a living as a farmer or within whatever um, industry it is, to make money off these these living creatures. So you tr- you went on to environmental ethics a bit there. And the, just the, the dichotomy that I wanted to say out loud for students was intrinsic versus instrumental value. And for mm-hmm. me, that distinction has really made a lot of sense for me with environmental ethics, but it also makes a lot of sense for me with animal ethics, because it's this, whether they have rights, whether they have value, whether they have interests, do they exist for my purpose or because they exist for themselves. And I think that it, it's almost a simpler way of starting to starting to think about what questions we want to ask ourselves about animals. And it's also really interesting that when you were talking about the economics, and I agreed with everything you were saying, and I have a point on a point to add to that, um, with the economics, that's such a Western way of looking at economic systems. We're all living within it. We're all, you know, beneficiaries of it. Um, but it's such a Western way of looking at things. And I think that there's this interesting research or unpacking to do with indigenous cultures, looking at animals as having intrinsic versus this instrumental value. And once we start to re position every being, including the environment, including the trees, as having intrinsic value over any kind of instrumental value, because we're still thinking about what they can do for us. I mean, I know as a vegetarian, I'm still, I do still think like, okay, well, where are we in the pecking order? And so I think that if we, if we start to reframe it and look at some of the indigenous cultures that put intrinsic value on animals, I think that the conversation might start to shift, but that segues into one problem that I have with our Western society is, aren't we lazy? Aren't we selfish and lazy? And that there are these other ways. Uh, Simon, before you were saying about like digging up land and, you know, all the moles and voles that get killed, I'm sure we could clear the land of at least 80% of them before we started farming, but we don't. We think that it's too economically costly. We think it's too time consuming. They're not worth our time. And so I think that there's this economic, political, sociological laziness that actually then says to us, well, then they're instrumental value. They're not, they don't have value in themselves. We we have to, you know, we're still highest on the pecking order. And and I think that that's the laziness of, of our society is something that frustrates me when we talk about animal ethics, because so much could change if we just owned our laziness and said, okay, if you do want to meet, if we could justify it when we get to that point of it, if you can justify eating meat, it's like, okay, well, you can't be lazy and therefore you're going to have to pay a premium and you can't be lazy about it. Okay. A lot, many fewer people will be eating meat. So should we just, I've got loads of questions buzzing around my head, but you know, otherwise we could go on for hours, couldn't we? Should we just go on then to consumption? And I suppose the, the question that I think I want to put to the three of you and see what you think is this. 
Is there anything morally wrong or morally bad about consumption in and of itself, consumption of meat and consumption of animal products? Or is it morally wrong or morally bad just because production seems to be morally dubious? So what, what's going on there? Any any thoughts on that? Can I ask you know, a clarification? Do you mean, how how in and of itself is, is this? So are we considering like, lab-grown meat that was, uh, you know, produced from a free-range cow that was completely free and, you know, we had a little, um, uh, it it shed a little bit of a, a sow, so, not, you know, are we including that or are we thinking of meat as the product? I, I, think, of- I think you're kind of starting to answer my question, Fiona. So I'm happy to, to include that, that sort of example. It's a really nice example, actually, to try to get at the idea of, what do we mean by meat, first of all? And then is there anything bad with consuming certain sorts of, of products? So why don't you just carry on? Okay, okay. So I mean I think if you could if you could have a completely clean meat, so it's it's just it, you know, it we you didn't even have any animals hurt in order to produce this the culture cells that, that it, I, 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 there, I don't think there could be anything. Well, I, I think it's 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 if in order to argue that that's wrong, you have to say it's wrong because it's similar to animal flesh. So that's quite that's quite a that's quite an argument to make. I'm now imagining like clean human flesh and whether that would be okay to eat, and that's giving me giving me some pause. Um, so Fiona, my questions then are: in order for it to be any kind of meat product, it has to have been taken from an existing living meat. So then if it's just taking the DNA and we can just, you know, rub a little cotton bud on someone and then we have the DNA and then we can make it, there's no pain involved. But the question is, do we have a right to take that animal's DNA without their full and informed consent? Um, But then otherwise what's happening now is that they have to take some sort of sample. And so whether that's incredibly painful or only minorly painful, is that something that we can justify ethically. So I'm with you and I, I want to know the answer because I'd love to go back to eating meat, but I can't, you know, figure that out. Yeah, I mean, that was why I kind of, in my in my example, I had the cow like rubbing against a fence and leaving some, <laughs> some, some uh, DNA that we could take. I think what this kind of brings out is that even when we're talking about like lab-grown meat, we often forget about the that, that it often does have ethically questionable origins. And, and, I, and I'm stuck on your question that if we think consumption in and of itself is fine, in which case let's go for lab-grown meat, I'm stuck with the idea of having instead of a, a beef burger, a human burger. Yeah. But it, it produced in the same way. I mean, I just feel a bit icky about eating human burger, but why should I? It's just been produced in exactly the same way. Well, I was going to say, I think that might be the... The problem with all of this is actually acknowledging that everything we consume is is problematic. Like everything is is whether plants have intrinsic value or not, we are definitely d- destroying something when we when we eat it. We consume something. You know, the word is there, and there is, as you said earlier in your question, Simon. You know, there is nature, and there is animals that eat other things, and there's there's eating in the food chain. So we're just sort of part of that. And in a way, I think that. It's acknowledging the the discomfort is anything we consume is either a living plant or a living animal. And there is some level of moral 
you can call it wrong, moral something happening there, whether it's wrong or whether it's necessary. And I think that's why for me, it always comes back to that idea of some form of necessity. Do I need to eat that particular thing or that particular flavour of thing or that particular texture of thing, whatever it is? And I think when you think about lab meat and you get troubled by it, what is going on there is you're acknowledging that whatever that thing is that's been made in the lab, it is still something and I'm going to put it into my body and I'm I'm growing it for, for that purpose. And is that a good enough reason to grow it? And is the thing, does it have any rights or does it have any sentience? You know, what is that thing that's been grown in the lab? And then the human ickiness, I think, is because, you know, when you really think about it like that, there is no intrinsic wrong with eating human flesh compared to animal flesh other than what our status in our minds of humans versus non-human animals are. And like you say, we live in a society where that is wrong, um, but it's always been wrong. We've we've grown up in a culture where we've been told that's wrong and where we've been told animal eating is right. I think of Simon Amstel's um, sort of mockumentary, Carnage, um, that I think is still available on BBC iPlayer if anyone yeah, uh, yeah. wants to see it. But he basically takes a very simple idea of like, it's the future where we all realise that eating meat is wrong. You know, any kind of meat product. So everyone's vegan. And it's just people sort of looking back on history and being shocked and horrified by the things that we used to do that we thought were fine. Because when you're in a culture where it's considered, you know, polite to offer someone milk in their cup of tea or something, or when you're in a culture where, oh, here's some sandwiches, there's loads of dead flesh in between the bread. Um, it doesn't feel wrong to do that, but we're not in a culture where it says, "Oh, granddad died," so we've, you know, the, the funeral is we're eating granddad. Those sort of things are things we don't do, so that feels intrinsically wrong to us. But it's not intrinsically wrong, possibly. It's possibly just what we've been cultivated into feeling about it. But what is the thing we need to think about is whatever we're putting into our bodies, we are taking something from the world and you know there, there's varying degrees of what we're comfortable with taking from the world just to fuel us and then you know h- how much we need and what we're fueling and you know we definitely consume more than we need we probably therefore kill more than we need or deforest more than we need or kill all the voles areas and, and insects which we haven't even mentioned yet if we do plants as well that takes out loads of insect habitats and things like that it's always going to take something and you know I think it's just an acknowledgement of that. And if you want to have a sort of moral intuition about it, it's maybe just recognising that, that even that thing grown in the lab feels like, but should we have grown it in the lab? And is it right? And I'm not sure because we're sort of tacitly acknowledging it. I, I suppose, yeah, just a, a very uh, a pause with just a very general thought then, um, building on what you just said, Dan, is that there's always kind of be some sort of consumption, some sort of destruction right and so we might be things that things might be morally wrong but but, you know we use the word degrees right perhaps there's just degrees of what we can live with but of course on the flip side is we have to do this right because otherwise we all just sit there and after a few days we starve to death right and clearly there's we think that there's something morally right in producing food to feed not just myself but other people it's a it's a it's a moral good right in fact perhaps even a moral necessity to feed to feed one's family and to make sure that other people get fed. So there's a really big, interesting clash and tension here um, about then how we, neg- but then the, the interesting issue, which I suppose we're trying to get through is how we negotiate that, those, those tensions. It's got to be good to feed people. It's got to be morally right to feed people. But how we do that, there's all sorts of problems. 
Um, Lauren mentioned laziness earlier as well. And I think one of the things we've got to think about in 2022 Western society where we're podcasting from is we don't have lifestyles where we all live in a sort of agrarian landscape and grow our own food and only produce what we want to consume and live in harmony with nature. So a lot of what we are consuming has been made so it can be cooked quickly in between busy lives, you know, doing jobs and doing all kinds of other things. And so there's an argument there about what we are consuming and its necessity and how much the lifestyle we've built around uh, everything else has changed our eating habits in a way that maybe has moral implications that you can eat meat or you cannot eat meat, but certainly you can't eat like ready, ready meals processed in a particular way. And that's the problem. It's how we're uh, pr- producing the food for this particular lifestyle we've created in our society. I think I want to, I want to disagree a little bit. I'm concerned about the sort of it's all ethically questionable. It's all a matter of degree kind of um, mm-hmm. kind of view. I think so. I see there being something distinctively wrong about about eating meat. So we we had this we drew this distinction between kind of instrumental and intrinsic before. I think I think there is something different between animals and plants. I think that that sentience matters, and I think that there is something peculiarly important about deliberately killing a sentient creature and uh, consuming something which which is is so intimately linked to the death to the to the intentional death of a a, a sentient creature. So. I think that there is a difference. I think between you know the case that that, that Simon brought up of the the moles who uh, killed as a result of agriculture of, of of plant agriculture and the animals that are killed in the meat industry because there's a difference between killing something as a killing it being the goal of your activity and killing it being a side effect. Now that's not to say that killing something as a side effect is doesn't matter i think you know it is ethically that you're right that it's ethically problematic and it should be something that concerns us but i also don't think that we should get into a kind of it's all a matter of degree it's all kind of the same that that's what worries me so I, my worry would be somebody listening to to what you said and saying okay so it's it's all bad there's no point in in becoming uh, a vegan or becoming a vegetarian i don't think that's what i've been trying to say so if i have no 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 that- and my worry is somebody listening, somebody might take it that way. So I, I want to I want to say I think that there are kind of not just a differences in degree, but some differences in kind here. But I also want to kind of say we should be we should kind of think about the concern of kind of if if we present everything as problematic, that may lead people to think there's no point. And so we have to we have to kind of think about how to respond to that. I think I've been trying to say that there is a difference of degree and that is important, that we are going to do something wrong however we do it and we should make sure we minimise the wrongdoing by doing the least amount of wrong that we can. So I agree that you know intentionally killing a sentient being is definitely far worse than chopping down some plants for a, a vegan burger or something and that's important. But it does. it's just recognising that everything we do has an impact. It's more about saying, actually, we should be more aware of our moral impact in the world than perhaps we are and and recognise everything is a moral decision to make. But yes, we should be minimising the bad that we do and 
the the wrongdoing i think by degree is far worse uh, uh, Lauren, and then I then I've got yeah. a question I want to ask you. Yeah, I want. I actually have a question, or maybe like a, a slight diversion. We're talking about the killing of animals, but we're not talking about animal products. Ah. So eggs and cheese. Is that your? Oh, good. Okay, good. Eggs and question. cheese. So for, before I go into eggs and cheese, uh, you mentioned Carnage. Can I also recommend the movie Okja? O K J A. Just going to throw that one out there as well. So we have to go back to production in order to talk about animal products. And so uh, one of the reasons that milk and dairy and stuff are unethical is because of factory farming. And and it's the the process by which the pain and the suffering that the cow has to has to undergo that makes the the dairy products unethical. Now, my question or maybe I like cuz it it's still conflicted in my head. So then free range goats in my backyard, I got two and so then is milking a goat in my backyard has, you know, lots of uh, range, uh, all the food at its disposable disposal. I pet it every day, it has everything it needs. Is there something morally problematic or I don't want to use the word problematic, but is there something unethical about than milking that cow. Now, I have colleagues who will say absolutely because it didn't give consent. And so then we have to consider the not just the interests of animals, but their ability to uh, make not make decisions about their own lives, but because they can't make decisions, then we can't just abuse them. So children can't make decisions for their own lives, So, but we can't just abuse them because they can't make those decisions. And so likewise, we can't uh, milk a goat because they can't give you that authorization. But then we have the issue of eggs, which I see. And I have I went to, you know, like the inner Hebrides and I watched chickens running around and they don't care about their eggs. They are just leaving them everywhere as byproducts. And so if we go along and pick them up, this byproduct that would otherwise just deteriorate into the ground, is that unethical? And if it is, is it unethical in the same way as dairy products are? So I'm asking more questions than anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I agree that, that the goat can't consent in a way that makes this a problem. Good, good. So I think, I, I think that, that that point of view kind of depends upon and understand either a kind of in unstable combination of views about the type of creatures that where consent is necessary and the type of creature of consent that's 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 needed so i i think that the animals can kind of they can sh- they can show whether they are happy with things or not happy with things right so you can you can tell whether a goat is is willingly being milked or not willingly being being milked and uh you know you you can say that that's a goat that's happy in its little um in your back garden so i think we can kind of make sense of like maybe ascent and then i think you you need kind of argument to show that more than that is needed because I mean, we'd say children can't consent to things and that doesn't allow us to abuse them but it also doesn't mean that you can't make decisions about what happens to children like my my children can draw pictures for example and then i have to decide what kind of level of what i can do with those pictures and i might depending on the age i might like have a discussion and see if they're happy with it but it's not obviously wrong for I think that there is a balance between the type of 
assent or consent that a type of a creature is capable of and what we can demand. On my view, um, animals' bodies do belong to them, which I think is quite important for uh, other ethical stuff. Um, so it would, I think, matter that you are using what belongs to the goat. But I don't think we can say categorically that there's no way that you can say, yeah, that is a goat that's in a in a happy, you know, co-supportive relationship and its its bodily products are being used. So I, I, I just I don't think we should be too quick to say uh, you can ethically in any case. I mean, I know in in most cases, I, I actually I do have uh i'm a vegetarian but i eat dairy and i feel guilty about it all the time because i know that in the actual world the dairy that i eat in is is not produced in an ethical way but i i think that that dairy is different from uh meat because there is possible worlds where dairy is is is, yeah. is okay and if we and if we can find those worlds where we all have goats in our backyard then it's like well is there really even a reason? We're feeding them. They're giving us milk. We're both feeding each other. And so it, that co coexistence is really interesting. Yeah, I just, I raise the issues, not because I necessarily agree with them, but because it's this, oh, there, there's this question to be answered there. Yeah. Well, I feel this, this so I was just going to say, I, I feel the same that um, I'm a vegetarian who thinks they should be a vegan, but, but aren't. And I actually think that's maybe back to the issue of degrees, I think I'm not a vegan primarily out of laziness because it's harder to be a vegan. I've tried to be a vegan several times over my life and just found it very time consuming or difficult to find the the right products that, you know, uh, substitutes and things like that. And I've always sort of been of the opinion that at least I'm doing what I can do and I'm not doing, you know, and, and so I do think that in a way, if the demand is absolute, we shouldn't be doing anything at all and we all should be vegan, which I think is probably morally true, then that becomes very likely for people to say, well, if I can't do that and do the full extreme, I may as well just stick with what I'm what I'm currently doing. And so I've kind of always felt probably there isn't a good argument for dairy in the same way that there isn't a good argument for meat. It's different kinds of argument, but it's about those things to do with bodily autonomy more than consent, because I don't think animals are the sort of things um, that we can get obvious consent in, in, in certain ways. And even then it would not be consent in the way that we paternalistically allow with children because it's asking, it's basically, will, will you give us stuff so we can have it? It's not for their own good. Um, then there might be an argument if dairy is an offshoot that by taking it away from them, it would somehow be for their own good. But in most cases, that's not the case, except for maybe the eggs that are, are left behind. But I think the, the, the real thing is just to think again, if I am not doing this one element, Will that then make conditions? So we've talked about production. If more people become vegetarian, there's an argument, therefore, that the conditions in a farm situation become less focused on killing and become more about giving animals a better life. And then maybe the farms become the lovely goat in our garden on a on a grand scale, and then we can feel better about the dairy. And at the same time, maybe the more that conversation starts, the more we start to think, well, actually, dairy is also bad. And that might be the next phase where we start to to realise. And although, like I say, I'm not a vegan, it's far easier to get, you know, oat milk instead of milk. I haven't bought milk milk for a long time. I just buy oat milk because it's available now in a way it wasn't when I first tried to be a vegan a few years ago. And there's far more options now because there's been more people becoming vegan. So I think it's one of those things where gradually through degrees, 
we we can sort of start changing the, the production and the consumption through those little steps. Whereas if you say the moral demands are vegan or nothing, you end up sort of counterproductively going, well, I'll do nothing then and just have a burger. Yeah, thanks all of you. And just to throw one more example in, I think we'll probably end this segment and, and move on. So, I mean, again, doing lots of reading in uh, preparation for this. I was reading about production of almond milk, most of which takes place in Central Valley in California. And at the moment, bees are, are dying in their billions um, because of parasites and pesticides that are used on millions of almond trees in California. So this is not to say that almond milk is as bad as, as cow or goat dairy, but there's, I mean, it goes back to something Dan was saying, and then we started discussing a, a while ago. There are problems everywhere you look. <laughs> so commercial beekeepers, and there are commercial beekeepers, are kind of basically factory farming bees. And in fact, the the US uh, Department of Agriculture, or whoever it is, um, classes bees as absolutely essential to the production process. And they're classified as livestock, which is very interesting. Go on, Lauren. Do you want to say something? But then we can, but then we can have conversations about like if we're looking at them as livestock, fine. But even if we're not looking at them as livestock, it's this issue of unpaid labor, or so the argument goes. I mean, I don't know if I'm there on that, but uh, but it is unpaid labor. And what are we giving to bees? They don't need us at all. You know, they're they're going to continue to make their honey and, and go to flowers. And so really, we're just benefiting from unpaid labor. And so that's when we have to go, well, is that problematic? Is there something different about not paying a bee versus not paying a human for their labor? And I think there is. I think there is something morally different about not pay- paying a bee, um, especially since the bees aren't going to use all of what they have. You know, I mean, there's a there's a there's an argument to be made of don't abuse, don't take excess, don't be lazy, don't, you know, do it for economic reasons, but then there is also this but we all do coexist. And so, you know, each to their each to their benefits, maybe it's a socialist system of each to their their abilities. Uh and so uh there is something about unpaid labor with bees for for some animal ethicists as well. Yeah, I used to always try and justify not being a vegan on this idea of, well, that's the contribution of animals to the community, the dairy, because it doesn't kill them and everyone should should do their bit. One thing I did just want to raise before we stop is sort of, we've talked a lot about we're coming from a Western-centric idea. One of the things I've I've found as a, as a vegetarian, um, and I don't know if others have found it, is sometimes what's interesting is with the ethical argument, there can be an alienation to a cultural life so certainly when you travel and you go places and you've got your ideas of veganism or vegetarianism and believe you know meat eating or fish eating and things like that is wrong and then you find yourself in a country where the national dish is this and maybe these ideas haven't um, become so mainstream in that country and you actually feel almost like people are trying to share something with you of their culture that you can't get involved in. And then even on a, you know, it's still not the majority view in in where we are in the UK, that you could see some people would say, even though there's all these arguments not to do it, there's other arguments to consume meat. And one of them might be just the sheer cultural, uh, social aspect of 
we as a society have these dishes that are part of our culture that are part of the way of expressing ourselves and i certainly feel when i when i get offered these amazing things that are supposed to be you know the very heart of our culture and you go actually i can't have that um i remember going through vietnam and cambodia not being able to eat anything with fish like fish sauce in it and stuff like that and luckily because there's a a lot of vegetarian buddhist monks there were some options but certainly in cambodia where it's a different kind of buddhism and less vegetarianism there was a lot of people feeling i was being insulting by saying no to their great food um and i'm trying to have a moral you know position but am i being immoral by being rude to people by saying no and i remember mark thomas the comedian once talking about going to africa for some um activism he was doing but he was offered you know goat curry from this tribe that he was staying with and he was a vegetarian but he was like of course i've got to have the goat curry because these people have basically set aside their food for the week for the visitor coming to see them and talk to them and to say no actually because the goat has rights and i'm a you know a, a vegetarian was something he didn't want to get into with them and i do often think a lot about that about is could there be other moral considerations that maybe outweigh and how how much do we care about cultural you know history because there's problems with that too thanks very much all of you for your thoughts plenty going on there lots of things we haven't uh, explored but let's leave it there and we'll see you all in the third segment where we're going to think about normative ethical theories and welcome back Okay, so in the first segment, we're thinking about general relationships between humans and animals and various examples we might want to think about. And we also thought about various characteristics of animals. And just to repeat some of those, we're thinking about sentience and rationality and whether animals can suffer. I'm sure they'll come back into into this segment as well. And then we just had a, a very large segment thinking specifically about eating animals and all of those big issues, production of animals, consumption of animals, thinking about animals and animal products, thinking about differences between vegetarianism and veganism. Lots of questions raised, lots of which we couldn't discuss. Um, But let's get on to um, this third and final segment, um, thinking about some classical normative ethical theories and how they might or have responded to the issues of eating and treating animals. So Dan, do you want to introduce them uh, for us briefly and then we'll have a chat about them yeah sure um i'll go through a brief uh, intro for, for for all three and then we can talk about them so with uh, utilitarianism as a sort of consequentialist theory we're looking at maximizing happiness for the most amount of people so obviously there's this question of who count as people that we're maximizing happiness or whatever we want to call the, the the thing we're trying to maximize for and bentham sort of talked about this idea that what's important is you know does the the person suffer or not and this was really taken by peter singer most famously as sort of saying well we have to include animals in this and specifically we have to think about an equal consideration of interests of of animals and non-human animals and be thinking about maximizing the, the the preference satisfaction of all these different interests that we have so for singer he says this idea he brings this idea of speciesism in that says it would be speciesist to not include animals in those metrics. And you know, if you're doing your hedonic calculus or however you're measuring it and you ignored animals and there was no reason other than, well, because they're animals, that's like being racist and going, well, because they're that race or being sexist and going, because they're, they're that sex. It's saying their animals is not a good enough reason to ignore their preferences because we know they suffer. We know they have preferences. We know they've got interests. We should therefore think about them. Um, 
Kant is very interesting when it comes to deontology because he's sort of your classic uh, Kantian, well, he is Kant, uh, he's your classic deontologist is what I mean to say. And he obviously prioritises rational, autonomous people and does not see animals as rational, autonomous people that we have to care about. When he says that we can't treat people um, as you know solely as, as means to an end, he means human beings and not animals. But he sort of comes up with this convoluted, almost virtue ethicist idea that says, but we still should think about what we do to animals because the way we treat animals might influence the way we end up treating each other. So we should be kind to animals to sort of habituate the idea of being kind to people like us. So he doesn't see the categorical imperative expands to um, animals in that way. Although Christine Korsgaard has subsequently expanded it in, in, in recent times and says she actually thinks if you, if you think about Kant, what Kant is saying, and rework Kant, it would make sense to say that we do need to think about the fact that animals value things and they should be part of our, of our things that we don't treat solely as means to an end as well. But there's also you know, Tom Reagan, who takes this idea of, of rights from a sort of deontological view and say, animals, again, like Singer says, unless we're, we've got a good reason to exclude them, we shouldn't be excluding them. And they, they should have rights, not just preference of interests that we consider. They are you know, living things and have some sort of rights that we need to respect. And then there's the virtue ethics idea, which sort of Kant has strangely already alluded to, which is that we should be habituating, you know, good moral living. And um, that includes how we treat non-human animals as well. So once you start expanding that and extending the way you interact with living beings to all living beings, um, that will include thinking about our interactions with animals. And I think it's um, Hursthouse who says, you know, factory farming specifically is a really inhumane thing that just allowing that to go on and, and, and not thinking that that is something you should oppose and, and buying into that is, is habituating all kinds of terrible exploitation uh, that we, we wouldn't want to human or non-human animals. So we shouldn't do that from a sort of virtue point of view. So I think that's a quick overview of some of the main theories. I don't know if there's anything uh, anyone wants to say about or anything that's missing uh, that you'd like to go into more depth about. Great, thanks, Dan. Fiona, Lauren, anything you want to add? Um, one thing I might you might talk about it. This, this I think harks back to something that Lauren said way back in the beginning about allowing harm to animals. So, so there's a philosopher called Alison Hills um, who has argued that utilitarians face a kind of really weird um, situation when it comes to wild animals. So uh, if we're talking about kind of at utilitarianism and the idea that you assess at, so you should perform the at which produces the best consequences, they typically don't distinguish between doing harm and allowing harm. So it looks as if they're if they're if they're going to give animals any kind of moral status at all, then actually what we should all be really doing is is trying to prevent all the horrible suffering that wild animals are currently experiencing which i think is a really nice a really nice point and i mean f- for me it, it kind of suggests that we should not be utilitarians when it comes to to animals we should um, we should we should go for uh, an, an, a non-kantian form of deontology so yeah just to underline that thought fiona because that's really helpful so it goes back to that um question i asked in the 
in the second segment, um, thinking about the harm that some animals might do to other animals. So just to make the point clear, are you suggesting that, Alison Hills is suggesting that we should be intervening there and making sure that the lions don't eat the antelopes? Yeah, yeah, because it's very painful. So much suffering. And that would make it... I mean, so we, we've, we've uh, you know, I think all of us know, and, and I think um, I hope students know that versions of utilitarianism, particularly act utilitarianism, basically one is very demanding. This is now going to be super demanding. We'd, we'd never sleep. We're just going to be intervening the whole time in the whole world. It also makes so that there are hybrid views of animal ethics. Um, so, you know, utilitarianism for animals, uh, deontology for humans, and uh, that is. That that has an even more bizarre result in that if you're not a, if you're a, not a consequentialist for humans, you presumably don't have such a demanding view when when it comes to what you need to do to protect humans. But if you accept utilitarianism for animals, we end up with you know all of our energy spent saving the animals when we're not required to save the humans. If you have a kind of hybrid view, um, which is is definitely not. I think the, I think people who propose this. Uh, these sort of hybrid views do it on the basis that they think animals lack something that humans have, and so it's a sort of way of giving uh, giving humans greater uh, moral status. But it has this really weird implication that actually you end up having to having a much more demanding moral theory for for animals, for wild animals, than for humans. So that that would be really weird. You know, you're you don't have to save any of the the poor human children you just have to be stopping the 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 lions from those poor you know devouring those poor antelopes something that comes through when you when i was like looking at the different theories and i think it's coming through in what you all are saying as well is this this hierarchy so virtue ethics definitely says you know it's all about how what it means for our own individual virtues. So how we treat animals is about how we are living our, towards our own eudaimonia because the animals don't have it. And then deontology is like, well, you know, we can use them as a means to an end, but be careful because, you know, you have this authority, you have this power and, and don't abuse that. And then and then if you go back to the utilitarianism and you're saying the wildlife and, you know, we have this responsibility to go and do this. I find it very... Um, uh, paternalistic. And with that paternalism, it, it constantly puts humans as the highest. So the, the conversation about whether or not animals have rights or interests almost falls away. And it says, well, what is our responsibility to do here? And, you know, what are we morally obligated to do? Not, not necessarily do they have value in and of themselves? And I think that's why I like the intrinsic versus instrumental value, um, because it it says it removes some of our power. It removes some of our um, height, height of moral standing and says, actually, let's just like bring us all down to some some level where we can understand interests differently. And um, I think that all of the theories just using this hierarchy is really interesting when you when you boil it down. And that's why maybe we don't always talk about the theories that we think more about animal ethics as an applied ethics and kind of give it its own argumentation and our own theoretical lens because the, the theories keep us keep us as, on a higher level and can't really bring us down. I think it's because the theories have a speciesism about them in that they, they come from people who weren't thinking about animals. 
um, and they were trying to create human theories of ethics. And what we've done in sort of more recent times is go, oh, you can apply that to animals as well, which we need to do now because we're starting to think about that in a different way. So I think that points to the fact that, yeah, maybe these are not the tools for this problem. But then if that's true, does that mean that these are not the tools for normative ethics? Because if we have to think about animals, if we should be considering their interests and their rights, and these theories aren't fit for purpose in that, we need to be applying a whole different ethical framework to everything, which incorporates thoughts about animals in it. Ooh. Big question. Anyone want to take Is that one? Answer it? <laughs> I think that's another reason why the current movements in a lot of universities towards decolonization are so important, because if we still look at these normative ethical theories that we're talking about, they're all Western European theories. And so I think that they're, so maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe they're not the right theories, but it doesn't mean that there's not a universal normative theory out there. We just, we in the West ne- haven't necessarily engaged with it, saw it yet, and that's why we don't talk about it. Um, but it might be being done somewhere else. And so I think that's why these these efforts towards decolonization are so, so important to answer your question exactly. I feel like I want to defend some of the <laughs> the, the, the ethical theories. I'm not sure that it is hierarchical to, I mean, so the virtue ethics, I mean, all, all of virtue ethics starts from the point of view of, you know, your, the agent. So that there's kind of a, a criticism of virtue ethics in general, that it starts from the point of view of the agent. Um, if we think about the, the non, so, I mean, Kantian, Dion, like Kant's position, clearly, I mean, we should not be mean to animals just because that's going to make us mean to humans. I mean, let's leave that one aside. But, you know, sort of um, other types of deontology, which are just thinking, you know, what am I required to do? I see them as, I mean, they're, they're, they're from the point of view of an agent thinking about what they're required to do. But I think that's a live ethical question. So I don't think it's necessarily sort of hierarchical to, to, start from that point of view and i mean like reagan for example his theory doesn't strike me as is particularly hierarchical in, in which you know he's he's really trying to kind of point out how uh animals are a subject to a life they're subjects of a life in the same way that, that that humans are i mean i i guess i think i mean maybe this is just uh, my perspective on a lot of ethics, but I think a, a lot of the, the the conversations that we have when we're thinking about animal ethics are actually basically just kind of Rossian deontology. Um, you know, you're trying to identify what the morally relevant features are and how and weigh up them up against each other, and that's just that's basically, you know, what Ross told us to do. So um, I, I think I, I you know. Yeah, I think it's kind of Rossian. Can, can I have a go as well about this hierarchical point? Actually, I think it's a really good question to think about. So I, I get the point that both of you are making about speciesism and indeed linking it to decolonization, right? So I suppose this is the thought that goes through my head, thinking about that notion not of animals being our property and us owning them and using them, all of that, but there's a sort of stewardship here. So Going, going with that thought, um, having some sort of ethical theory, whether it's based on sentience or rationality or whatever, no matter how, how you make the case, there are only certain sort of animals that have a certain amount of 
consciousness and self-consciousness, right? And it's only humans, really, who can make some decisions that go go beyond human beings and think in this way. We're the only being that can have this sort of theorization and then to be taking actions and and being stewards for the earth. That might be one thought, right? So it's not hierarchy. So what would be hierarchical would be to say, and therefore we get special dibs, right, on what happens in the actions. Uh, I think that's what I'm saying is what there is, though. I think because we are... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the the rethink I think might be needed, that any time we have... We, first of all, we come up with the theories that we can do as humans, yeah. and then we try to modernise them and bring animals into them. But we're still bringing animals into them from the point of view of, and we're on top. Yeah, yeah. And so once we then, though, do bring a sort of equal consideration in a, in a true sense of, of animal interest, you might realise that some of those theories might need radically changing or, or being being eliminated and replaced and things like that but i i also think that's one of the things with, with, with decolonization is it's hugely important to recognize that even the things you think are very good about the system and that you want to keep might be coming from the perspective of having that's what i know ethics to be and a, a totally outside of view of that might be refreshing and important and bring insight that our current theories don't but at the same time there might be some really good insights there that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so it's sort of trying to restore what's worth restoring, but not just restoring it, I guess, for nostalgic reasons or for just, I feel like it's important because it's what I know, uh, which is really hard, especially if talking to A-level students who are at the behest of whatever the exam boards say are the theories they need to, to study. But in, in a way, that's why I think it's a really good question to ask and possibly to end with because it gets us to have these sort of reflections about normative ethical theory there might be some elements which are really good but you just need to remind yourself it's a kind of big reminder here isn't it that actually even if there are differences between humans and animals those different which allow us to, to be the only, the only sort of creatures that can have these reflections those sorts of reflections and that sort of special status may not justify certain actions that we're now taking towards animals uh, even if there are some parts of the theory which are worth having. Yeah, okay, good. Listen, that was uh, really helpful. Should we leave things there, though? Thanks to all of you for listening. And we should say thank you to our guests as well uh, for coming on today. So thank you, Lauren. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and Fiona. Thank you for having me. And lastly, Dan. Thank you for having me. And thanks again to you for listening and all being well. We'll join you again for another episode of Philosophy Gets Schooled soon. 